Welcome to another edition of the Network Better podcast with me, Dave Harris, talking to Jeremy Marchant, the author of the book Network Better, How to Meet, Connect and Grow Your Business. One of the uh, quotes on the back of the book, and I'll just turn it over to make sure I get it right, is, OK, I'm doing what you told me, so how come it isn't working? Uh, we did a recent podcast where we talked about some of the practical things you can do to make your networking more effective. And we're going to continue that today because we've realised that Jeremy obviously already knew this, but I've realised that this is a huge subject and there's uh, a lot to this. So, Jeremy, welcome. Thank you. Um, let's talk about some more tips. L- last time we covered all sorts of interesting things, including, you know, our limiting around our limiting beliefs and people's uh, determination to be right or, or uh, and things like that and how those can be unattractive, how neediness can be unattractive and networking and that's, those sorts of things. So let's sort of move on from that then and, and talk to talk to me about some of the other things that we can do better and to make our networking more effective. Of course. So um, in an earlier podcast, uh, I was advocating uh, having one-to-one meetings with people that you meet at the networking event because, in truth, going to a networking event isn't actually networking, it's having the one-to-one meetings afterwards that constitutes developing your network. And I advise having one-to-one meetings with anybody on the basis you don't know who they are until you've spoken to them at least for half an hour. And so I, this is actually quite a long time ago, but I was having this one-to-one with an accountant and he worked for a small to medium-sized accountancy firm. And um, we were going along and I, to be, to be really honest, I can't remember the details of the, the conversation, although that might be telling in its own Right. One of the things I do remember, though, is that uh, at one point um, he reached into his desk and he took out an A4 ledger, uh, which he showed me. He opened it and showed me that on one side of the page he had recorded the value of the business that he received from other people at other networking events. And on the other side of the page he recorded the value of the work that he gave to people that he met at networking events. And he did this, he told me, so that he did not give work of a higher value than the value of the work that he had received. I think we've spoken, um, we might even told this story before in another podcast, but uh, that's what I call a scarcity model. That's a belief that there's not enough to go round there's scarcity in other words there's not enough work there's not enough money there's not enough opportunities and and ultimately um, it stems from a belief that there's not enough love to go around and so the person who finds that they are in a situation where they're required to give and perhaps has experienced the fact that other people give to them nevertheless is offering operating a strict zero sum game whereby he or she believes that they can't give more than they receive and this trait which i call giving in order to get is remarkably common to be honest and it's common in the way that i spoke about some other things in the other podcast being common that is that people don't notice that they're doing it um, or that they have this belief. Possibly they have the belief and they think it's a right belief to have. I'm not sure what the word right means. I prefer the word useful. It's clearly not useful if people realise that your motive for giving them something is that they then have to give you something back. 
And in in extreme cases, they don't actually give until you've given something back. That's really unhelpful. It's a really easy one to uh, advise people on how to avoid this trap, which is simply two words, stop it. Act as if you had a belief that it's okay to give as much as you like as much as other people like maybe is probably the better way to put it uh it's okay to give as much as other people like because um actually it's not a zero-sum game and actually the more giving you are perceived to be the more likely it is people will like you and want to give to you so as ever it's one of these things that requires a tiny bit of faith um in order to demonstrate that it's true and once you've experienced that it's true then you should be able to carry on so letting go of beliefs can be really difficult what i suggest for all beliefs is you don't decide right from now on for the rest of my life i'm I'm going to believe something completely different in fact believe the opposite of what i believed just undertake just commit to doing it for a little while and i think a little while in this context was probably three months and just go to networking events and test whether what I've said is true because it's not what I say is not true unless you test that it's true but I think you'll find that you will come across much more compellingly much more persuasively to the point where if you cultivate it by explicitly making the other person more important than you and, ask, and asking about what they need and seeing if you can help them you will find that you get more results so the scarcity model, I understand that, is, is inappropriate. And I, I've certainly experienced that myself, I think. I, I, I've had conversations in networking situations, even with people that I may have met a few times, and, and so the relationship is starting to develop, hopefully, where I suddenly am aware that they are kind of almost bargaining. Mm. They're almost saying, well, you know, yeah, I'll probably get you some work. What can you get for me? Sort of thing. It's almost like that, you know. They want they want a they want a contract in place. You know, I'll I'll find you X thousand pounds or worth of work if you find me X thousand pounds of work. So that that yeah, that definitely exists, doesn't it? I mean, it's it's always struck me as a little bit strange. Well, it certainly exists in in those sorts of examples because it's almost upfront and obvious. Uh, the more interesting ones are the ones where people aren't aware that it's going on consciously, but unconsciously the person you're talking to is is very aware of it if that's what your belief is. It may not happen in the first 5 seconds, but I bet it will become they will become aware of it in say 10 minutes. Uh, because it's almost impossible not to give away this belief because it is so so ingrained you know for many people it would have it would have started to be ingrained when they were i don't know six months old so if you've got i mean you you said you had two words for them stop it and that's great and 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 good advice no doubt but if it is ingrained since they were six months old or whatever you know how do you get yourself out of that well that's that was my point of, of not making it too difficult for yourself by saying well I'm never going to believe that ever again I'm going to believe the complete opposite for the rest of my life do it for a limited period of time um, and just be curious as to what your what will happen if you behave differently and you have to behave differently because you have a different belief and so just give yourself those three months there are people who are so concerned to be right about this and we discussed being right in the previous podcast that they will effectively undermine any experiment they claim to be doing as to whether what I suggest is useful. And ultimately, you can't stop them. I I can't make people be different. 
If they want to undermine themselves, let them do it. The best I can offer is an explanation of why they're subsequently not as successful as they could be. Um, and maybe in five years' time or whenever, the penny will drop. That's a good starting point, where we, we don't want to limit ourselves by, by having this insistence on a quid pro quo, if I can put it that way. So what else? What, what, what are some other good sort of hints and tips for helping us to you know, get over some of the common errors that, uh, that we, we might be subject to? Yes, well, I, I, I think that that phrase, stop it, probably applies to everything. You know, that's, the podcast could just be five seconds long. You know, just stop it. So we talked just now about how people often give in order to get. And there is, it's worth sometimes teasing out the differences between things which appear to be similar because they're not. So a very similar thing is what I would basically describe as just being coming across as a dependent person. And, you know, I've had this. I, I know a, a guy who runs a networking organisation and he has exit interviews with those people that decide to leave. He had an exit interview with somebody and he asked her during the course of the conversation, did you think it was worthwhile being a member? And she said, no. And did you get any business from it? And she said, no. And he said, how many one-to-ones did you have? And she said, none. And what she's really is or was is a dependent person, just somebody who is looking for other people to meet her needs without her even giving anything. She just has that belief that the world is there to meet her needs. It's quite common because, again, it's one of these things which derives from childhood. You know, Obviously, as small babies, we're completely dependent. And the process of maturation and uh, decent parenting, or even adequate parenting, is that the child learns to become more independent. People who think that it was nice being dependent and they'd like some more of that, um, even though they're 37 are basically trying to recapture something which they will never recapture because it doesn't work when you're 37. You know, you you have to be that independent person. And it's sad, really, because the dependent person probably has many things to give, even if it's just insights in a conversation. And it's so sad that they, they feel that they're not in a position to be what I would call interdependent, where each party is um, helping the other. Whether that, that, when I say party, I mean it could be just a couple of people chatting over a networking lunch or it could be people having a one-to-one. Do you think there's another aspect of this as well um, to do with new business, uh, new businesses, I should say, where you're, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to my own kind of start uh, and and certainly I've seen this in other people as well, where you start a new business, you might have been working in the corporate sector or have come from some big organisation and you start a new business and it's a big leap of faith obviously to do that and takes takes a bit of bravery and so on. And one of the things that often drives that is a belief that you're going to offer something that the market wants, presumably, because you wouldn't probably do it otherwise. And therefore I think the other side, the flip side of that same coin perhaps, is that you have a belief that people are going to basically be queuing up for your service because it's so good, because what you've thought of, this marvellous idea that you're going to the marketplace with, is so good that everybody's going to want it. And you kind of don't, almost don't need to do anything. You know, all you've got to do is wait for them. You know, you, you set up your stall and they'll come and buy it. And so that's kind of a bit like that dependency thing in a sense, in that you, don't, you start out not... I mean, you, I'm 
dare say you fairly quickly learn, unless you're very lucky, that that isn't the way the world works. But it, it sort of feels like a bit like the same thing in a way. You have this dependence on other people coming to you and saying, hey, what a great thing, can I buy that, please? Yeah, I think that's, that's true. I mean, there is a precedent, or there are precedents, though, for this idea that you set up a company with an offering and everybody beats a path to your door and you don't just have to be the maker of a better mousetrap as they say you know this this is true of you know electronic gadgets um, and media services and so forth so it is actually it is actually possible to do that you just have to be very lucky that the thing that you've invented is uh, the thing that just catches on however that doesn't work for small businesses because small businesses don't have the reach towards uh, a constituency, for want of a better word, large enough to generate enough sales that it takes off on its own. Um, And so actually the small business has to look for each client one by one. And I think the main point I would pick up on what you said, although you might not have noticed you said it, is, is, is it's never about what the client wants or what the potential client wants. It's about what the potential client needs. Because although not all businesses are run entirely professionally. In reality, business owners, people who work in businesses, ought to be acting in the best interests of the company and not the individual. And so it's always about what the business, what the client business needs, not what the individual person in the business wants. But to take the, take the wider point, yes, I think that's right. Um, you know, a belief that, yes, there's a, there's a large quantity of customers just waiting for you to exist um, before they buy things off you yeah I think that's that is a corollary with with a small child who expects to have his or her needs met by their parent their mother let's be non-pc and use the word mother without the child doing anything it has to be said as well I mean you know you talked about it doesn't work for small businesses, but it often doesn't work for big business as well. I mean, there are the the, the electronics world is is is, is full of, uh, or the roadside of the electronics world is is full of discarded, fantastic ideas yeah. that were just marketed badly or not marketed at all. Yeah. Uh, the, the Betamax videotape springs to mind for those of you old enough to remember it. It was a superior format to VHS, but uh, Sony kept it to themselves, wouldn't license it were convinced that people would be queuing up to buy it anyway, and they weren't. So dependency, I think, is something which you can become aware of yourself, partly because if you are dependent in a business relationship, then for sure you're dependent in all types of relationships that you have. Um, And if it's not evident in your business work, it will become evident elsewhere, Uh, particularly if, if you have close personal relationships where the other person will find it impossible not to mention the fact to you that you're very dependent and providing they can do it in a way which isn't totally judgmental um, you'll find that useful. I suppose uh, to pursue the the child analogy further I suppose a new business in, in a sense is like a new child absolutely and, and, and as, as they mature you know and become they become less dependent. Yes and, uh, the problem is that However inexperienced she feels she is, the young mother with a new baby actually is intuitively hardwired into being a good mother, at least a good enough mother, through many, 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 many generations of evolution. Whereas on the whole, adults are not hardwired into how to run a business. So they do have to approach it consciously and a little less fake naivety would go down well. I mean, I'm surprised, to be honest, it's beside the point, really, but I'm surprised that there are so many business people who make a virtue of the fact that they never learn how to run a business as if that was an intelligent 
way of going about supporting your staff. Yeah, and and I've met many business owners who proudly uh, say, "Oh, we don't bother with marketing. We don't bother with." Uh, that sort of thing, you know, we just, you know, we're just successful. Yeah, and, and occasionally there are businesses like that. As you know, I worked for Marks & Spencer in the 80s, and it never did any advertising at all, because it didn't need to. The shops, the stores were the advertisement, and we had, I don't know, 20 million people walk through our doors every week. Listen, we've got a few minutes left on this podcast, so have you got another tip for us that we yes, can let, let's, take let, away? Let's, let's talk about comfort zone, uh, which we've alluded to in a couple of the other podcasts, but it's really important. People tend to restrict their behaviour to what they feel comfortable with, and that is actually understandable, but it's not helpful to them, whether it's in their private life or whether it's in their business life or any other life. I like this model which says that outside the comfort zone is not stress, the belief that it's all stressful outside the comfort zone is why people won't go out of it. And if that were true, that would be a good reason for not doing it. But in reality, it's possible to say that outside the comfort zone is what you could call a stretch zone, which is where people can go and stretch themselves and do things which they wouldn't otherwise do or they would feel a bit apprehensive about doing because they need to do it. Perhaps, you know, in athletics, in sports and so forth, they may stretch themselves in various ways. If they're into mountain climbing, you know, climb that higher mountain, climb that more steep rock face, whatever. In business, it's the same. In networking in particular, it's the same. Because people don't like walking into a room full of men with their backs to them, all talking to each other. You just have to move out of your comfort zone and realise that you can deal with whatever happens in the networking event. Because unlike trying to accost people on Bristol Temple Mead Station. You're entitled to feel rejected if people reject you because they don't expect you to approach them. In a networking event, the whole idea is that you talk to people. So they oughtn't to be upset if you talk to them. And if you do talk to them and they feel and they give the impression that they're upset, then that is their stuff. It's not your stuff. So pushing yourself outside the comfort zone is essential for businesses. As you were saying, talking earlier about the new business, the business owners got to push themselves out of their comfort zone all the time. Make sure they don't go so far as to stress themselves a lot, but make sure that they do it. And what will happen is that what they thought was their stretch zone becomes absorbed into their comfort zone, which gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and, and therefore they are more able, more happy to do things which once they thought they couldn't do. And presumably you could, I mean, you could go so far into that stretch zone that you kind of go beyond the stretch zone and then, and then, and then you know, introduce some genuine stress into yeah. a situation. Well, it won't kill you. It's just, just don't do it all the time. I would even say do it occasionally so that you know where that stress, that, that point is where it becomes stressful. Because actually, if you are stretching yourself, you will find that that point where it becomes stressful moves further and further away from uh, the point, the centre of the comfort zone. So, yeah, be aware of it. Um, we all get stressed anyway. You know, when, when something serious happens in our lives or to in the lives of uh, somebody we're close to, then we're going to get stressed. You can't help it. So don't be scared of getting stressed, but don't overdo it. And don't avoid it. Don't stick in this comfort zone when actually there's a, a stretch zone you can get into to the benefit of your business. Jeremy, that's, uh, as usual, fabulous and very insightful advice. Thank you very much for that. I'm sure we will come back to this in future podcasts. But, uh, but for now, thanks very much. Thank you. <laughs>